Good morning. Well, we continue in our series, Becoming the Church, Stories of the First Jesus People. We're in chapter 8 this morning. We're going to look at verses 5 through 25 in particular. But I'd like to begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 8. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went, um, proclaimed as good news the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he had said. With shrieks, evil spirits or unclean spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he, had, he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, that is, in status, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They'd simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you. And I think that's striking because it assumes that he's already on a path to perishing. So what Simon is praying is that may your money accompany you. And this is really strong language. 
I am not exaggerating when Peter says here, take your money and go to hell. That is exactly what Peter is saying, but not in language that has that kind of uh, temperament for us. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps He will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. Some read intention. You could put the word purpose. But the point is very clear here, and you should make note that intentions, thoughts, purposes find their source in the heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Which tells you a little bit about how Simon sees things, because it's almost as though the words are magic. So you say them. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Bill White of Paramount, California devoted Saturdays to serving with uh, local churches in renovating dilapidated homes in the city of Compton, California. It was an outreach to neighborhoods. And on one day, um, some 50 volunteers, highly visible in their matching yellow t-shirts, broke for lunch, and uh, Bill took a walk. Up street about eight houses, Bill passed a married couple working in their yard. Pausing to compliment the woman on her roses, she asked what was going on down the street. And Bill replied that they represented a band of churches serving the needs of others in the community. And the woman, in turn, had in fact noticed the projects in the neighborhood. And so she took the opportunity to thank Bill for his simple goodness. While they were talking, her husband, who was weed whacking on the other side of the yard, caught Bill in his gaze and made his way over to where they were standing and talking. He recognized Bill's yellow volunteer shirt. And Bill wrote, I will never forget his words. After looking into my eyes, he nodded approvingly toward the renovated house down the street and then said, I love your heart. Where can I get a heart like yours? Bill was uh, flabbergasted, as he put it. And he said, we got our hearts from Jesus. Jesus. 
And Jesus would be glad to give you one like His too. Well, that really does uh, say it all. And Bill says that what followed was a great conversation about the Gospel of Jesus Christ and His power to change hearts, to change homes, to change neighborhoods, and to change even cities, even as we see here in Acts. That simple expression, we got our hearts from Jesus, really does say it all. It would make a striking title for Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 25, which we just read. Because the heart, the interior motive of Jesus' people is put on display here. And that motive, that interior life, that interior experience that's so real is contrasted with the ulterior motive of Simon, who is the long-standing religious megapower and power shepherd. You could call him the power pastor in Samaria. And this battle of powers, miracles versus magic, the Holy Spirit versus unholy impure spirits, which is exactly the wording unholy or unclean spirits in verse uh, 7 and 8. In this battle we see a very clear victory. But it isn't a battle of might makes right. It's a battle of right makes might. And it's contrasted, a contrast of hearts, a contrast of the Jesus people, and Simon in this case. And that becomes very, very relevant to the importance of having a right heart. How clear is it that Jesus' people are right-hearted when Peter says to Simon in verse 21, your heart is not right before God. And as I pointed out when we were reading it in verse 22, we see why the heart is so important. It generates the intentions, the thoughts, and purposes of a person. It's the source of what motivates us, what makes us tick, what makes us go. Jesus people get their hearts from Jesus. And what we see here, and this is the main point, Jesus people are right-hearted. Jesus people are right-hearted. And we see this in three ways here in Acts that I want to draw attention to. And the first one is the manifestation of a right heart and the Spirit. And uh, we see this in particular in verses 14 through 17. Because there we have a contrast. A contrast, uh, really, uh, between uh, two missions, two ministries, as it were. (laughs) Did I leave a page? Thank you. But the message of, uh, of the ministry of Philip really goes back 
to Jesus Christ himself. And that's why I see this as an issue of right heart. Because when we think of the message, and uh, Philip's message to the people of Samaria uh, is uh, characterized by us at a couple of points uh, along the way. It says that when he came to Samaria, he, uh, he proclaimed the Messiah. Uh, well, the Messiah is Jesus. And you may recall that even before the coming of the Holy Spirit, in that 40-day period in which uh, Jesus uh, came and went among his disciples, and it's recorded at the end of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, and then it's also uh, picked up at the beginning of uh, the second volume of his, his work, Luke and Acts, in the very first chapter. But I wanted to remind us of verses uh, 45 through 48 of, of Luke chapter 24, and particularly Jesus says to his disciples, it is written, and he had opened his, their minds to see the scriptures in light of himself. And so now he can share with them th how he fits into God's plan. And he says, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And note these words, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. To all nations. That excludes nobody. And we can't lose sight of that. Everyone is within the focus of this message. And this message really is a person. That Jesus is the Messiah. And that what He has done in His suffering and resurrection is for the forgiveness of sins, which in itself is so powerful because it breaks the bond of the forces that dominate and enslave us. Not only of our selfish self, but those that rival and find their very beginning and source in the rebellion of Satan himself against God. And so he says, in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. Now, I wanted to emphasize that because that's said to those hand-picked apostles that Jesus calls witnesses. And then in Acts chapter 1, when he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit, he says, there's a mission involved with this message, and it depends on you as witnesses. But you're not to go out and begin this mission until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And in light of so much of what we've talked about in the preceding chapters, I hope I don't have to clarify the fact that if I were to almost put this in my own words, at Jesus' resurrection and then exaltation to the right hand of the Father, He's given the promise of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, in chapter 2, verse 33, when Peter is preaching, he says, when they think they're drunk after the Spirit's come upon them, he begins to tell them they're not drunk. This is an evidence of this promise that has been poured out on them. And in verse 33 of chapter 2, he says, Jesus has poured out this Spirit. And we've talked about the very Jesus character. We went to John 14, 15, and 16, the Gospel of John, to see that Jesus referred there to this Holy Spirit as a paraclete. Another one, he says, I'm not going to leave you bereft. I'm going to send another. And so... 
he calls him a paraclete because in effect the Holy Spirit is going to do what Jesus in his very presence and person has been doing with his disciples. And so if I were to put 1.8 in my own words, it would be almost in the light of all that God is doing through Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit, is in effect to say, this message is in your hands and the mission begins when I show up in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going with you. I'm going to empower you for this thing because this message is all about me. This isn't just facts and details of history. This is a message that is so real that it changes you who bear it. And we see this powerfully in Philip. Where did Philip come from? Well, he's first mentioned, as we saw in chapter 6, there was the issue of the care of widows. And so they committed to seven who, in their lives, were detectably filled with the Holy Spirit. And Philip is mentioned along with Stephen. Now these are all Hellenistic Jews, that is, Greek-speaking Jews, and Philip is one of them. But he was not among the Galileans who followed Jesus, the apostles. He was not among the 120 who were in the upper room. He is, has been won to Jesus Christ by this very message. That's important to note. He was not among them all along. He has come to Christ, probably in the events of Acts chapter 2. This guy has been touched by the reality of Jesus. This message is real to him. It's changed him. Christ is real to him. And so with the persecution, he carries this message which is living itself out in his own life to the Samaritans. And I think that's very profound and important for us to appreciate. His mission to tell others of what has happened to him, to tell this message, is contrasted with Simon. So we get the story of Philip, and then we get the backstory, which begins in verse 9, of Simon, because Simon's not even in our mental picture up until verse 9. And then we learn that he has been the power pastor and shepherd in Samaria. He's known as the power of God in these parts. If there's a religious influence, if there's a, if you will, uh, a tele-evangelist that everybody watches in Samaria, it's Simon. And that's the point. If you pay attention to the wording, Luke is telling us you have to know that this guy's he's been entrenched in this area for a long time. What Philip is doing through the power of the Holy Spirit that is actually being manifest in what? Casting out unclean spirits and healing people who are feeble quite literally some translated paralyzed and lame 
And then it says in verse 8, there was great joy in that city. Now, I don't know of anybody that really comments at length on the joy. So that makes me a little hesitant to speak too boldly about what's happening here. But I, I have trouble with this joy not being somehow connected to this spiritual uh, pall over these people. Because when you understand that Simon is a magician, that's, that's literally the word. Uh, I know that uh, the NIV calls him a sorcerer. That would be acceptable, but it's, it's quite literally a magician. And Luke doesn't tell us any more about his practices or what they involved. But we know from other ancient sources that a magician would be involved in working spells and curses and oaths and exorcisms, uh, cursing uh, and also curing uh, spiritual causes of disease. They would be involved in trying to control the weather, uh, the, the growth and uh, abundance of crops and things like that. So he's, he's been involved in the occult, and the occult is real. And I think the joy that is expressed here is a, is a manifestation of, of a real break for these people with the oppressive dark forces of the occult. That's just my footnote to the mention of joy because I think that's quite striking right before we're introduced to the backstory of Simon. That brings us uh, to his story. I just want to draw out one thing. Simon amazed the people. We see that it's repeated twice in verse 9 and 11. Now, in verse uh, 13, he himself is amazed. And let's look at verse 12 and 13 because I think they're really quite powerful. It says, uh, and, and it quite literally says in verse 12, other translations word this a little differently than the NIV, but Philip is preaching, and it says, while he was preaching the good news um, of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. I think that's quite poignant. While he was preaching that, the people believed. So they're responding to what he's proclaiming about Jesus Christ, and they begin to be baptized. Now that's about as authentic a description of uh, a reception of the gospel as I can think of. And then it says in verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished. Now he himself, you see, is astonished by great signs and miracles, the miracles he saw. That brings us to the second thing I want us to see here, and that is the manifestation of a right heart and the Spirit. The mission is a manifestation of the message and the heart of Jesus. And not only is it seen in Philip's mission of the Samaritans uh, to the Samaritans, but it's seen in Peter and John. And I want to just take a moment to tell you a little bit about the Samaritans. Deep seated 
prejudice existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. And often, it certainly occasionally erupted in violence, but that deep-seated prejudice divided the Jews and Samaritans, creating geographical, social, and religious rifts between them. In fact, you may recall when Jesus decided on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem or to Judea, he stopped to get some water. And he did something that wasn't always the case. He, he decided to cut through Samaria. He, he stopped at a well, and there a woman came out. Uh, she was going to get water, and they entered into a conversation. And in verse 9 of chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, she says to Jesus, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? And then we're told, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. No dealings with Samaritans. And I think that cut both ways. In fact, I know it did. Animosity ran both directions. And since the mission here in Acts chapter 8 is from Jerusalem to Samaria, I thought it might be helpful to kind of see the way the Jews viewed the Samaritans. For example, uh, in the Mishnah, which is uh, a product of, of the Jews, uh, they're of doubtful stock. In other words, they were considered to be half-breeds, uh, maybe just a, a cut above Gentiles. And um, they were considered hardly better. They were viewed as unclean. And it was a general rule that they were not to be believed. Rabbi R. Eliezer said, Let no man eat the bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. In fact, there was a popular prayer at the time, Do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Jesus was called, and you may remember this from the Gospel of John chapter 8, very strong language. Jesus was called by His own people a Samaritan and demon-possessed. A Samaritan and demon-possessed. When you just put those two ideas together, they kind of uh, splash on each other. You wouldn't use Samaritan and demon-possessed unless somehow you saw a connection. In fact, it makes me wonder, when we think of the history of Simon in Samaria, if maybe his reputation wasn't kind of widespread. Because someone who was demon-possessed was considered to be mad. Out of his mind. Possessed. And it's Simon who said he was someone great even the power of God. In fact, some scholars have felt that Simon claimed to be God in the presence of his own person or the Son of God, which was an issue between Jesus and his own people. I don't know. Interesting. W.C. Fields declared, I am free of all prejudice. I hate everyone equally. The thing about prejudice is that it is not only hate, 
but it's caught from others. And it's rarely based on personal experience. Overcoming prejudice requires a game-changing shift in our hearts. In Jesus, there is no mission without the reality of the message. Because it is that game change in a person's heart that causes Jews to go into Samaria with the good news of Jesus Christ. With a willingness to say what we have, we want you to have too. That comes from Jesus Himself. They've got Jesus-shaped hearts. Philip isn't going to proclaim to others what he has himself not received. Keep that in mind. Not only for how we think about Philip, but also how we think about Peter and John when they come down. You may recall that it was John, in fact, along with his brother James, they were just on the fringe between Galilee and Samaria when they went for some supplies. They needed some hospitality and they stepped stopped into a village in Samaria. They were on their way to Jerusalem. And when the Samaritans found out about it, they refused to show any hospitality to Jesus and His disciples. This is in Luke chapter 9. And at that point, John said, Jesus, why don't you put your power to good use and scorch these people, men, women, and children, top to bottom, side to side. That is strong language. This isn't just Bible stuff. This is the kind of stuff that sometimes we also mutter when we're thinking about people that we hate because of reputation or what we've heard they've done or the color of their skin or a range of other things that we don't like about them. And it interferes with the way we see them and view them. And if we search our hearts, we know it would be hard for us to bring the gospel to these people because we're not even ready to associate with them. We're not even ready to treat them as peers. We don't even see ourselves as humble enough or in the right way because we look down on others. And I see this mission to the Samaritans as a powerful manifestation of the gospel and the reality of right hearts. That they would even enter and share Jesus Christ with these people. It means that they themselves have been transformed and changed. It's a powerful, powerful witness to right-heartedness that comes from the fact that Jesus resides in our hearts as believers. You know, I think of... uh, Just to pick on one thing, I think of uh, people who live along the border I bet it's harder for them. It's easy for me to get up here and, and, you know, like maybe get self-righteous about this. It's tougher up close and personal, and I know. But I I think of those people, how how it must be hard when, when in their minds, even though maybe they don't see it right up close and personal, but in some indirect way, they're feeling the impact of illegal or undocumented immigration. 
There's really not any difference on the borders between Samaria and Galilee and Samaria and Judea. And I just wonder if those who are up close and personal in a situation like that, and maybe we can identify on our own with similar or principled-like situations, I, I wonder how they would respond or how we would respond to the rebuke of Jesus. Jesus rebuked his disciples when they wanted him to use his power to call down fire from heaven. He rebuked them. Jesus rebuked a lot of people. He used the Samaritans in his teaching to shame listeners, Jews or otherwise, in their, on the issue of prejudice. We're all familiar with the Good Samaritan. We all want to be like that Samaritan. But that was a rebuke, especially to his own people. Do you remember there were these ten unclean lepers that Jesus came in contact with? Ten of them. And he told them, and it was a step of faith, he says, go and show yourself to the priest. And so they left. And on the way, they became cleansed of their disease. They became whole on the way. One came back to Jesus and gave God glory. And Jesus said, why did only this one foreigner, why did this foreigner come back? Because that one foreigner is expressly a Samaritan. And why did Jesus call him a foreigner? Because that's the way all people looked at them. And more importantly, it tells us that the other nine were Jews. He used them to bring a sense of shame. So that in that brokenness, we might be open to the work of God in our lives. Deep-seated prejudice explains also why the Samaritans received the Spirit at the prayer for and touch of Peter and John, I think. Because the normal pattern is that baptism of the Spirit occurs at the moment of saving faith which in the New Testament was practically simultaneous with water baptism. In fact, I think that if you pay attention to verse 16, that's exactly why Luke wants to make that point. Verse 16 says, For he, the Spirit, had not yet fallen upon any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Those words only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus imply that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was concurrent or expected to occur close to the baptism. And baptism, forgive me, but I, I really think baptism needs to take place in proximity to someone receiving Jesus Christ. That is not to say that the, the authentic 
disposition of the heart to say, I surrender to you, Lord, become my Lord and Savior, that that isn't going to bring the Holy Spirit. But the formal expression to the body of Christ, to other believers, to the church, was baptism. And it actually expressed the transference or exchange of ownership from me to him. And that's why baptism in water in the name of Jesus, that's always important, and it's mentioned even here, in the name of Jesus, because of his authority, that that is when the Holy Spirit comes, because it was the formal expression of faith in Jesus Christ, at least to the church. And so why did the Samaritans not receive the Holy Spirit? By the way, I think that that was uh, Luke's clarification for Theophilus, who probably expected, based on Acts 2 and 3, for the Holy Spirit to come at water baptism upon, the, upon His people, upon the Jesus' people. And I think that the answer why they did not receive the Holy Spirit at the time they believed and were baptized, which is made so clear in verse 13, is that it was to unite the Jewish and the Samaritan Jesus people, assuring mutual and shared status in Christ, something the Samaritan Jesus people needed and something that the Jewish Jesus people needed too. And Peter and John were part of that. And look at how beautiful it is because it says that when Peter and John come down, they pray for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. That is just, I mean, that touches me deeply. That is so, such an intimate expression of care. And it is when they begin to put their hands on them, and I wondered, and wonder now, if, if that wasn't almost simultaneously praying for the Holy Spirit and touching them, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. What a powerful confirmation to them. Pay attention to that, because when Peter, who is, it's a big hurdle and we see a little of that even here. But it's a big hurdle for Peter when the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles when they receive the Gospel. In chapter 10, verse 44, Peter is telling Cornelius about Jesus Christ. And while he's in mid-sentence, the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius. And Peter's just blown away because he hasn't been baptized. And that's what he tells them the rest of the, When he gets back to Jerusalem, he says, they received the Spirit just like we did. Pay attention to that in chapter 11. He says, I didn't expect that. And then I remembered what Jesus told us, which is revealed to us in verse 5. And he quotes it there in chapter 11. He says that the, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit comes upon Cornelius, then they're baptized immediately in the name of Jesus Christ. So this, there is an unfolding of what God is doing that's catching up His people, His right-hearted people, and taking them further. And then, let me just share with you, you this last point, the malady of a right heart. And we really see this in, in Simon. And this is powerful because... Simon has been baptized. Verse 13 says he believed and got baptized. So he looks just like everyone else. But when he saw that power 
come upon the Samaritans with the prayer and the laying on of hands and the, this wedding of these uh, formerly prejudiced people in one spirit. He wanted not the spirit for himself, but he wanted to control the power of the spirit. A magician didn't do what he did for free. That's how he made his living. There were fees associated with the work of his powers. He wants to invest some of that money in a greater power than he's ever seen because he wants to profit off of it. Luke tells us two things about Simon that we really need to pay attention to. Back in verse 9 and 10, he said, he told us that, that Simon thought, he said that he himself was someone great. Simon is all about self-promotion. That's the first thing. The other thing we're told right here in this uh, occasion when he petitions Peter with money for control of the Spirit, uh, we're told that he sees the Gospel as a commodity. And that, that, that's a, a, an eye-opener for us. Because in subtle ways, those two things get in the way of a right heart. They corrupt religion on any level. And they certainly corrupt the Gospel. When we are more about self-promotion than promoting Jesus Christ, and when we begin to see this uh, religious life as a commodity upon which we can trade um, for favors, benefits. How about you know people who come into the church and decide, hey, this is I got a I got a, a whole new uh, field for sales. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to profit, I'm going to play on my associations in the Lord for my business profitability. I've been in the ministry for 38 years, and over that period of time, I've had people basically say, unless you do things my way, I'm going to withhold my tithes and offerings. Wow. Wow, something's really wrong. Something, why do you give your tithes and offerings? I think if we think about it, we can find all kinds of subtle ways that sometimes we follow in the very footsteps of Simon. Because human nature is about self-promotion and financial profit. Those are the powers of this earthly way. Will you stand with me? Jesus' people are right-hearted. And the way that uh, we always stay right-hearted is through our intimate walk with Jesus Christ to get our eyes on Him to let His beauty show us the truth. The truth about ourselves and the truth about others. That the message might be powerful in our lives. There's no mission without that message being powerful in our own lives first.
If you feel like you're far from the Lord, or distant, or cold, your spiritual life has become dusty, it really becomes a matter of just turning to Jesus. Returning to to Him. So this morning, if God has been speaking to you in an area of your life, I would encourage you to bring that to Jesus. Bring your heart to Him. Maybe this morning, because of someone that you care about, or because the message of Jesus is so real in your life, you're heavy-hearted about something else and you'd like to pray about that, we invite you to come. Uh, We're going to have a closing song. and uh, No, we're not going to have a... But there's... Brian's going to play some music. (laughs) And as he plays, I'm going to be standing up here, and I know that elders and pastoral staff are too. And if you'd like to pray with us, we invite you to come. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that it's uh, so real because it's uh, in a way so simple. It's not for the elite or... Uh, the, the special born, uh, people of special pedigree. You're accessible to us. All we have to do is call on Your name. May we be mindful of that this week. Call on You step by step as we walk with You and know the joy of Your presence in our lives and the powerful change that You make in us that's noticed by the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.